Hey guys, if you are wondering how I create my podcasts, I want to tell you it is through this great website or app called Anchor. It's free and super user-friendly. There's a lot of tools on there that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or your computer. No microphone necessary. Um, It will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and uh, many more. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. Um, It's everything you need to make your podcast right in one place. Very simple. So go to the Anchor app or anchor.fm to get started. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Hardex Head. Today, I have a guest with me. Her name is Kara. She is podcasting all the way from Australia today. She is a five-time open heart surgery survivor and currently waiting on a heart transplant. So she is here to share her story and then uh, maybe ask me some questions about the whole transplant process. So uh, go ahead and tell us a little bit about yourself, Cara. Yeah, sure. Hi, guys. Um, So I live in a place called Mooney Beach, which is on the east coast of Australia. And I was born... um, 37 years old and when I was born in 1984 I was born with a pretty complex congenital heart condition which was diagnosed as pulmonary atresia. Um, When I was born they didn't pick it up obviously during the pregnancy but um, they picked up pretty early on after being born that there was something not right because I was what they call a blue baby. So I then went in and I had my first heart surgery at three days old. Then I had another one at six days old. Then I had a surgery. um, The surgery I had when I was six days old, my parents were told, you know, we've not really seen anybody with this condition before. Basically, take her home, enjoy her while you've got her because I don't. there's nothing more that we can do. Um, and then when I was six months old, my mum got a phone call from one of the top professors who had been over in America and he said, I think that I've seen a surgery that would work for Cara. However, it's never been performed in Australia and it's never been performed on a newborn before. And mum said, well, how can I make that decision? And he said, well, put it this way. If we don't try it, you won't have Cara for very long. But if we do try it and it works, then you'll have her for a lot longer. So I had this surgery at six months old, which was a corrective surgery. Um, From what I understand, they basically took muscle from my back and basically man-made a valve and what they thought back then was because it was tissue it would grow um and then I lived a pretty normal life I was quite blessed I um my condition didn't stop me from doing anything I played every sport I you know went to school did just lived life normally and then when I was about 21 years old, I started to get really sick again and I had to have another, my fourth heart surgery. And that was where they did a pulmonary valve replacement. Um, and then I bounced straight back from that again and just kept living life. Um, 
traveled a lot, worked overseas, you know, just enjoying your 20s and, you know, becoming an adult. And then when I was about 33 years old, so in 2017, I started to get really sick again. And I didn't, it sounds really silly, but I was quite naive because the only surgery that I remember was the surgery I had when I was 21. And because, you know, my condition had never really stopped me, I just, I thought, oh, they'll just do a surgery and I'll bounce right back. So I had the surgery I had when I was, um, that was done in 2017, I had I believe a pulmonary and aortic valve replacement. I had a bidirectional gland shunt. They did what they call amazing and star procedure. And then they also put pacing wires in because what they anticipated was I was going to need a pacemaker. However, with the bidirectional gland shunt, they wouldn't have been able to access to put the wires in after the fact. Um but I didn't really recover from that surgery too well. So I had um, about a year and a half after that, I actually was diagnosed with end-stage heart failure. And now I'm on the waiting list for a heart. How long have you been on the list? So I've only been on the list since the 24th of September last year. So what... What happened, there was a bit leading up to me actually being diagnosed with the end-stage heart failure and then eventually being listed. I um, I had a pretty horrific and not very nice recovery after the last surgery and I knew straight away, like I, I knew that something wasn't right. I just didn't feel like you just know. And I Oh, yeah. I kept getting told, no, no, everything's fine. I think you're just anxious. Um, so I have never met another person who had a bidirectional glen. I had the same procedure done when I was 16. That was my wow. second open heart surgery. My first one was at 12. So I remember all of them. Um, yeah. I, I was a blue baby as well, but my condition wasn't that bad when I was a baby and I didn't get really, really sick until it was like right when I hit puberty, when I started growing up, my heart, I guess my heart just couldn't keep up. So I always knew right away too, like whether or not the surgery was a success and that bi-directional Glenn procedure screwed me up and I was never the same. Oh my God. I'm so glad you said that. (laughs) Horrible. Like I actually... Like I actually turned into a nutcase because I was so sick. I couldn't keep anything down. I just was just generally feeling unwell. I was mm-hmm. nauseous at the time. I kept getting, I live about six hours away from Sydney. So in like a small beach town. And um, I kept getting air flown back down to the, my cardiac team down in Sydney in and out of emergency and you know when you have professors and top doctors telling you no no the heart looks fine and I think you're just anxious you know you you sort of go crazy a little bit because I'm feeling so unwell yet I'm like all these doctors are saying maybe it is so that was for the first four to six months after my surgery 
we were backing down from Sydney and in emergency. And then I just tried to pull my big girl pants up, I guess, because I wasn't getting anywhere and everybody was saying I was fine. So I actually, I suffered mentally quite a bit because I thought, oh, God, maybe maybe I'm just imagining it all. So I, so me and my partner tried to get on with life the best we could. I actually re-entered the workforce and I don't know how I did that, looking back. <laughs> and we moved to the Gold Coast, which is oh, about three, four hours from where we were living. We'd set up our new life. And I was going okay, like I wasn't 100%, like Things still weren't right, but I thought, oh, well, um, maybe it's just my body. I'm older. My body's getting used to it. And then about December of 2017 and then January of 2018, I again went down with my health and was in and out of emergency, couldn't keep anything down just was really sick a couple of times in an ambulance and again I had all these doctors telling me there was nothing wrong with me and then it got to about 14 months after my surgery and I just ended up emailing my professor in Sydney because even though I couldn't eat anything I looked like I was about nine months pregnant like I was holding so much fluid Mm-hmm. And I got my partner to take a photo and I sent it to him and basically said, you know, I'm, I know that you keep saying my heart is fine, but something is not right. I've been in and out of emergencies, yada, yada, yada. And he said, well, once I sent him the photo, he said, look, I think we, someone needs to see you. You can either fly down to Sydney or there's a, uh, I've got a colleague who's also excellent in adults with congenital heart disease that works out of Brisbane. So I just thought, oh, I'll go to Brisbane because it's only like an hour's drive. And thank God for that man because he took one look at me and said, you're in heart failure. And he drained two and a half litres of fluid that had been pooling over those 14 months out of my abdomen and liver. Then he did a right heart cath and that's when they said, you know, you're in end-stage heart failure. Unfortunately, it doesn't look like the operation worked and I think why you've been so unwell is that you've actually been in heart failure and the only thing that is going to help you is going to be a heart transplant. However, that's obviously something we don't want to rush into, so let's try and stabilise the heart failure first with meds, which was quite good so for the first four years three and a half four years I um I've been trying to stabilize my heart failure with meds and my you know I'd go up and down I've never been a hundred percent but and then um about January last year I started to get really sick again and I just said to him basically we both sort of knew that I was done I couldn't keep going on the way I was going and um, then he said that then in May last year I had another appointment and he said look I think it's time we referred you to the heart lung team Um, but he referred me to the heart lung team down in Sydney because they apparently um, are the best with congenital transplant patients 
And yeah, so I did the work up transplant, work up to transplant all through COVID, which was interesting. (laughs) (laughs) And being living in a smaller town too, because oh, sorry, in that time we'd moved back from the Gold Coast down to Coffs Harbour where we were living when I just had my last surgery. So we were back living in a smaller town again. So trying to navigate the the limited health services here and then a pandemic and restrictions and lockdowns. It was pretty interesting. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. Um, You know, I had, I had my transplant during COVID. It's been, I had my transplant a year ago and that was interesting as well because, you know, you, you couldn't, so at least in, in Ohio at the Cleveland clinic, the restrictions at the hospital at that time were, you could have one guest if you were having like a surgery that wasn't outpatient. However, that did not extend to transplant patients because of, you know, our immune systems. So no visitors at all on the transplant floor. None. That was my biggest, that's been my biggest fear since I got listed because for a little bit we had that rule and I just, I, I was so worried because, (laughs) like you know what you've been through maybe not transplant but we've been through heart surgery before and it's like you know what helps you get better and it's always having your support system you know my mum had helped me shower and my dad comes in with the jokes and makes everything funny and the thought of being there on your own it's just hats off to you that's I can't believe you did that (laughs) well I will tell you (laughs) I am like I don't you know I don't have like a boyfriend or a husband or anything like that so I'm you know I'm pretty independent with all of this and I was nervous going into it about not being able to have any visitors and my biggest thing was kind of the same reason my mom was always the one to help me shower and my mom would stay with me yeah but I also got so many other visitors during all my other transplants friends family aunts uncles you know all these people and I deeply appreciated it but it was exhausting like yeah you just have open heart surgery and you're in the ICU or whatever and you're trying to rest and people are constantly in and out on t- yeah. you know the doctors and the the blood team uh they're in enough and then you have all these oh. people so I realized this time around with no visitors I was much more well rested it was less stressful like, of course I missed, you know, my parents, but we FaceTimed a lot. But the nurses were so good about doing everything that my mom had done in the past, you know, like God bless nurses, seriously. And you get to know, you know, your transplant team so well by that point that like, they come in every single day. Like when you have a transplant, you will see five doctors a day. Yeah. And I mean, that's an, like, they're like your friends at that point, you know, you know them very well, you've seen them a lot. So that's almost like having a visitor. So it's not like as bad as you're thinking it is in your head. It's not like there's never anyone in your room. Yeah. Yeah. No, so I, I, back to that, I wouldn't worry. <laughs> but um, yeah, so well, they've lifted that now. So that's all right. It was more so I think, I think because like, and this is the thing like, of. <laughs> It does get me a little bit, I guess, uh, frustrated and I guess a little bit angry. 
I was fine with hospitals before. It was such a routine part of my life. And I was like, you know, I had all faith. And then because of what happened with my last recovery and how it didn't get picked up and just like how I kept getting told, like sort of not listened to, I guess, I feel like it's developed a little bit of anxiety within myself now. Mm -hmm. Uh, Like that's something I'm working on, but it does because now like I feel like I have to second guess. I'm like, what, are they really listening or like, and that's one thing I do get a little bit upset about because I was, I never had any um, mental strain or anxiety or PTSD or anything with going to hospitals before. I was so calm with it all and that's sort of been the after effect, I guess. Yeah, but I I'm can trying, imagine. Yeah, but I'm trying not to focus on that. But, yeah, that that was tough. But it's so funny because it was like because I'd been working up to this for so many years, it, it sounds ridiculous, but it was almost I felt elated and like a weight had been lifted when I finally got through the workup and they listed me because it was like, oh, like – I don't know if that sounds weird, but I'm Oh my God, not at all. So like they, they typically try to push it as far as they can before they list you and before you get a transplant because, you know, transplanted hearts only last a certain number of years, like 10 to yeah. 15, I think is the average. So they basically want you to be like as old as they can get you before they get you your first heart. That way you don't end up needing two or three hearts over the course of your life. But when I, so at first, when they told me I needed a transplant, I at first didn't, I didn't want to do it. Like, I don't know if you've been in this position, but it gets with being sick your entire life and going through these surgeries where you're just like done, you know, you just like, don't want to fight anymore. You don't care if you die. It's similar to people. I mean, it's the same thing as people who go through cancer and chemo, and then they just, they don't want to fight anymore. They just want to live the rest of their life and die without that. So I was at that point for a little bit. And then I eventually, you know, decided that I wanted the transplant, but I wanted it now. I wanted it when I was young enough to enjoy it. I never really had, I never had like a quote unquote normal life. The surgeries kept me alive, but they never made me feel very good. I felt pretty crappy my whole life. Um, so I just was so ready to have like a normally functioning heart that I'm like, give this to me now when I'm young, I don't sit and wait until I'm 50 for a heart when it's like, my body is like destroyed because I'm 50. So now I can't use my heart. And I sort of like, I think that I totally, I mean, I got sick really, really quick. Like I didn't even... I didn't even realize how sick I was. Like, I didn't feel good at all, but like, same as you, I thought maybe it was in my head. And then I did like a stress test and a right heart cath. And my doctors were like, you need to be admitted right now to be put on intravenous medication while you wait on this heart transplant, which I did. And then I got the, the uh, right ventricular cyst device, the RVAD similar to an LVAD. And then I I got the heart like three days after that. So I think like manifested myself getting this heart at a young age. And I'm 
you know, now, I mean, it's been very hard. I will tell you transplant is a whole another ball game compared to a regular open heart surgery, but I'm, you know, it's, I'm so glad I did it. I feel amazing. I will never, ever, ever have another transplant. I don't care like what happens. I will not do it again, but like it was worth it to do it one time to live whatever life I have left feeling this good. Oh, that's so good to hear. Cause that's one thing <laughs> like I, well, we've discussed it privacy, privately, but obviously like when they first mentioned transplant, I, a couple of years ago, I started sussing out support groups and just, you know, asking questions and it almost sounds weird but it almost had the reverse effect of it than a support group is actually meant to have I had to like leave them all because I know that people have their own journey and people mean well but it was I think because I was and I I do I think I I know I was so blessed like I had such a well normal upbringing than most congenital heart kids and I think that's why I've struggled mentally since the last op because it technically hasn't really stopped me from doing anything, my condition. So then when it did, it was like, ah. So when I was asking questions on support groups about like, because I love traveling and I'm so active and, you know, I'm a bit of a social butterfly. You know, I think I asked one of the first questions I asked was about travel and it was basically, I had everybody going, oh, no, no, I wouldn't be hopping on a plane. Are you serious? I wouldn't be going over internationally anywhere. And I was just like, <laughs> what? What do you mean? Like, I just, so I kind of had to like stop looking at them because it was, I was going down a bit of a vortex sort of thing. It was like, what's the point of getting a heart if, if I can't do anything with it? Like, so here's my theory on those people because same I left all of those support groups they were horrible um my theory is not many people who get transplants are congenital patients or like if they are they might be congenital patients who have never had open heart surgery before they're just in heart failure so it's either people who are not congenital and they're like they're in heart failure because they're older and it's like a lifestyle induced thing. And those people are angry that they got sick and angry. They had to go through this where in our case, we've had this our entire lives in and out of hospitals, multiple open heart surgeries. So when we get there, we're, we're used to it. First of all, we're conditioned for it. And we're grateful. We're like, finally, you know, finally, I'm getting a heart that is not deformed. Um, So that's why, you know, we have a little bit of a different attitude going into it than some other people. And in my opinion, so I went on my first trip, I got on an airplane. Let's see, my my transplant was in March, I got out of the hospital, March of 2021, I got out of the hospital in end of April, 2021. And I went to New Orleans to visit a friend, got on a plane in early or mid July. So I didn't, yeah, I did not wait long at all. And, you know, I, 
have never really been afraid of COVID. I've just my whole life and especially the older I get and the more I understand like the mind body connection, my whole life, I've just had this like really, really deep, significant feeling that like, I'm going to be fine. Yeah. And I believe when you die, you die. Like it's, that's your time and you're not going to die a second before that. Yeah. I've never really been afraid of COVID. I just, I mean, like, obvi- it's all about mitigating risk, right? So like, I'll wear my mask on an airplane. I'll wear my mask in the hospital. Am I going to not travel, not go out with my friends, not go to the gym? Like I'm doing, I'm doing those things. And I got COVID in August after my transplant. I had been vaccinated. I got COVID and I was fine. Like it sucked. It was like the worst cold I had ever had, but I was, I never went to the hospital for it and I made a full recovery. Oh, that's good. And it's funny you say that because I think, and I have said this my whole life I reckon the reason that I live have lived so long and and lived so well without needing a big chunk of my childhood and adult life without needing too many surgical procedures or you know any help is I think I was a bit ignorant. I, it sounds silly, but I just thought I had a scar and I was sick when I was a kid. Like I didn't see myself as a sick person and I think exactly what you said. Like I think that that's why I lived as well as I have and because it, you know, the mind has is quite a powerful tool and if you start thinking of yourself as a sick person, whereas before I just, growing up I just thought I was had a scar I didn't think I was different and I didn't think oh I can't do that because of my condition like some of the stuff that I've done I sort of cringe now and I'm like oh maybe that wasn't a good idea but (laughs) you you know but then it's like well and it's it's been such this journey I've had like good friends that I've known since we were in kindergarten and um one of them, my best friend Ashley, she was like, because she's been like going through my journey with me, she's been one of my rocks. And she just, she's like, you know, I feel so bad, but she's like, I didn't realize how serious your condition was because she's like, I didn't, you never, it didn't stop you from doing anything. Like, so it's been like a realization for not just me, but for friends and family too because we did like yeah I don't know how to explain it it's almost like I've I've just been diagnosed if that makes sense yeah I mean people you know heart defects can be such an invisible illness because yeah we have a scar but like I mean your scar looks like pretty healed and mine is the same like I've always healed very well to the point where like you can barely see it especially in the summer when I get a little tan it like it's like it doesn't exist so you know it people don't it's not like we're you know bald or something like that that like you know when people look at you they realize oh that person is sick they have cancer if you're like bald with no eyebrows no hair or whatever yeah but for us it's like people will look at you and they don't you don't look sick uh so they really you know they downplay in their minds like the effect that it actually has on you and and i can remember towards 
you know, towards the end of uh, my heart failure before I got the heart the last couple years, I wasn't working anymore. And when I would go out with my friends, it was like, they had to drop me off at the door of wherever we would be going or, or, you know, I couldn't, I would never want to do anything like I would, I was always terrified of going somewhere where we had to park far away or Mm -hmm. going somewhere where we we would maybe have to walk up a hill. Even going to the mall was impossible for me. Um, And my friends like could not understand that. And especially because I knew like from having so much experience with open heart surgeries, I knew going into the transplant, how important it was to stay like physically strong, especially in your upper body. So I would still like two or three times a week, I would still pull myself to the gym. I would sit on a bench and I would do light upper body workouts because I wanted to keep my upper body strong. So my, I don't understand go to the gym, but then you can't walk up a hill. And I like, it was so hard to explain to them. My cardiologist, when I was young, explained it to me in a way that was like perfect. And I'll never forget this. He said, imagine when you wake up in the morning, you have 20 spoons in your hand and everything you do costs a certain number of spoons, depending on how much energy it takes. So the gym might be five spoons. Taking a shower might be two spoons, but when you're out of spoons for the day, you're out of them. You left. Yeah. I would save, you know, my quote unquote spoons or my energy for like those things that I knew I really, really had to do. I still to this day, because, you know, I mean, transplanted isn't a cure. I feel a lot better, but transplanted hearts don't work at a hundred percent, like your average heart would. So to this day, I take showers sitting down. Um, You know, I still sleep more than other people. I save my energy for those things in my life. Really important to me. Mm-hmm. it's um it's funny isn't it like when you were talking about your friends saying like mentioning you go into the gym but then you can't walk up a hill it's actually been a real eye-opener for my partner because we met when I was we were both living and working in Whistler in Canada and you know I was in my prime over there like you know I was snowboarding and partying and just living life and so it's been even like it's been a big wake up call for him because he goes similar things. He's like, one day I'll wake I'll wake up and some days I'm fine and then other days, you know, I can't get off the couch, I can't move. And he sometimes has trouble with that because he's like, I don't understand. You were fine just then. Like, <laughs> I, can't, I can't explain it. And it's really yeah. Like, He's getting better with it now, but it was really hard for him to wrap his head around because I didn't, I never really, like, I never really talked about my heart condition because when I met, when we met and for majority of our relationship, it was never an issue. So I didn't, you know, it's not like you, when you meet someone, you're like, hi, I'm Cara, I've had five surgeries and blah, blah, blah. (laughs) <laughs> oh yeah I mean that's the last thing you want to do so I know so he actually it's taken him and yes yeah, still to this st- he's getting better but still there'll be days where he'll be like like I'll go shopping and then I'll have to call him to get the shopping bags out of the car and he's like I don't understand why can't you walk them up the stairs I'm like 
(laughs) That is literally Mount Everest to me. Like walking up steps with full grocery bags and end stage heart failure. You might as well ask me to climb Mount Everest. And I don't know. I, I, I have asked you this privately before, but, um, so one thing that they kept drilling in my head during workup and before I got referred to the transplant team, my cardiologist at the time was um, quite informative about it. But I never understood until I got listed how they said, oh, congenital patients aren't like regular transplant patients and I never realized until I did the transplant. But did you have, I, because of all my donor valves and all the blood transfusions I've had throughout my life, it actually, even though it probably worked in my favor from my life, now I'm needing a transplant. It's actually sort of having the reverse effect because my body had, had really high antibodies against certain tissues so I think my antibodies when I first got listed and it actually was going to they had to discuss it to see if it would be an issue of even being listed but my antibodies were sitting at 98 percent and I actually recently about a month and a half ago was in hospital down in Sydney for two weeks having a procedure called plasmapheresis which is basically similar to a dialysis machine but it just cleans you of all your antibodies and I had that for a period over two weeks and I got the results back last week and they've come down to 86 percent which is still quite high but they said that yeah there's going to be my wait is probably going to be a lot longer and it might be a little more difficult to find me a heart because of those antibodies which I'd never heard of before because I just assumed like I know they have to match up blood and tissue but I just assumed it went on a list and got a call like I didn't actually realize until I was on the list and in the thick of it what actually all goes into it and I didn't realize that you know being a congenital patient is a bit more risky and you know having a So I did not deal with that. That was, oh man, that was never even brought up. I mean, okay. So I'm sure you've gotten all of this. When you, when you're on the list for a transplant, they give you papers and pamphlets and books. (laughs) I mean, so much of them. And I don't read that stuff. I, I throw it away. Like I'm not reading this. So they never mentioned that like, you know, at an appointment, but maybe it was like written somewhere that that was like a thing that they would have to test. But if they did test it, I, I must've not had high antibodies cause I didn't have to go through that at all. I did know that, um, certain, okay. So something that you're like really susceptible to after transplant, it's called CMV. It's like a, it's like a kind of like it's sort of like a cold, I think, like, don't quote me because I don't know exactly what it is, but apparently like in normal people, it like very rarely even has any side effects, but in transplanted patients, you can get really, really sick from it. So like you and your donor have both had it. 
I think you're like less likely to get it. But if like your donor had it and you didn't, you're more likely to get it. Like, I mean, there's all this crazy stuff that goes into how your antibodies match up. But that really, I know that like my donor, my donor and I were like literally a perfect match. My, my surgeon was like, you will not find a better heart than this one for you. So have they talked to you about like high risk hearts yet? Yeah, I've signed my life away on that. Like, um, I had to sign a bit because they because of a high antibody situation and all of that stuff. They basically said it shrunk my donor pool right down. So they said they basically I've had to tick yes. Well, I didn't. They didn't make me, but they said because the donor pool is so small for you, I probably would just tick yes to all of them so you don't miss out on a heart because there's medication we can give you to help you if you did. But like, you know, the high risk hearts from like someone with hepatitis and stuff. Yep. Like yeah. 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 So, so when they offered me my heart, I was, I was still in ICU recovering from, so when I had the RVAD put in, that was another open heart surgery. And during that procedure, they like took down the Glen and they did all this other kind of pre-work because they knew I was going to be getting the transplant soon. When you have an RVAD so LVADs, you can go home on. They're real small. The left ventricular cyst device, you can go home on those. You can live on those for a long time. Yeah. That is not the case with RVADs. RVADs are like oh. not highly researched. They are very archaic. They're huge. They're like, once you're on an RVAD, you are not going home. You're either wow. dying. Yeah. You're either dying within in the hospital or you get the transplant. So once I have that put in, it, it's, it's bizarre. Um, once I had that put in though, I was a one status top of the list. So it was, it was like not even three days after I had that put in that, uh, my nurse got a phone call, you know, when you're in the ICU, your nurse is like right there at all times, right outside of like your curtain. Yeah. So she gets a phone call and she says, okay, I'll tell her. And she hangs up and she comes in and told me that they found a match. And then she said, you know, it is high risk. Do you want to accept it? And my surgeon came in then and said to me, like, I, if I were you, I would accept, you know, I don't, I can't remember exactly how he said it. Cause I'm sure there's like laws with what exactly they're allowed to say, but he basically told me the heart was a, like such a good match that they, there was no chance of them ever finding a better one for me. Yeah. So I took it and I didn't have, I didn't have any, I didn't have hepatitis C. I didn't, I mean, there was nothing. I didn't end up with anything. Um, I did end up needing a pacemaker because when they reconnected everything, the, the, the ventricles didn't quite like come back to life as much as they should. So Mm -hmm. ventricles only beat at like, I don't know, 50 beats per minute or something on their own, which is, I mean, I might as well be asleep all the time at that low. So they put a pacemaker in and and I have a pacemaker now, but that doesn't, I mean, the only thing that the pacemaker affects is I can't, it's not that I can't move my shoulder in certain ways, but it hurts to move my shoulder in certain ways. Otherwise it doesn't, it doesn't affect me at all. So I've had zero rejection, zero complications. I was in the hospital I've been in the hospital twice in the emergency room twice since then. The first time, (laughs) the first time I went skydiving to celebrate my six month heart (laughs) anniversary and 
<laughs> Nothing bad happened, but I, so like, have you ever been skydiving? No, but I've been on one of those big bungee swing things. So, but Okay, so it's probably similar. Like when they open the parachute, it jerks you really, really hard. Yeah. And I ended up like pulling a muscle in my chest from that. And I had really bad chest pain. So of course I went to the ER and turns out it was just like a pulled muscle mixed with a little bit of inflammation. They put me on cold in two days. And then I also say when you walked. (laughs) Well, so like, did you tell me when skydiving? (laughs) (laughs) I believe that my my mom or my dad actually came in and told them. I don't remember exactly how it went down, but um, so like all of my nurses and like the the blood team. I can never remember what you actually call the blood team. I call them the blood fuckers because they come in at like four in the morning and want your blood every day. So (laughs) they all thought it was awesome. And like my doctors like pretended like they were pissed, but I feel like they secretly also thought it was awesome. Oh yeah. That's making the most of the heart. Like, I mean, they know that I am their rebel patient. They know that I am the one that is going to push all the boundaries. I just don't tell them everything that I do. Um, (laughs) Again, so everyone listening, I am not qualified to give you medical advice. So don't listen to anything I say uh, as far as, you know, taking my advice goes. This is just all personal experience. (laughs) Um, And then another time I was in the ER, I had... I just had really low iron. Um, yeah. My body has a hard time like recreating its own blood when I lose it. Mm-hmm. So because I'm a woman, I lose it every month. And sometimes I end up with really low iron and I just didn't feel good at all. So I went to the ER and they tested all my levels and I'm currently having iron infusions and I've had like two of them and I already feel great again. Oh, that's good. Um, it's, I was giggling because when you mentioned the blood fuckers <laughs> at my my last surgery, that was what the doctor, one of the hematologists that was in the ward or dealing with me, he would come in, but he was from Romania, so he sounded like Count Dracula, and he's coming in, <laughs> like, I'm here to take your blood. <laughs> Well, I'm so glad that you got the joke that I call them blood fuckers instead of blood suckers because I don't like I think some people don't pick up on that joke, like that connection there between vampires and the people who take your blood. So I one time I am like very, very nice to the entire staff. Like anyone from like the people who bring in my food, the people who clean my room, my nurses, my doctors. My cat is scratching on the door if anyone is wondering what that sound is. If I let him in here, he would just meow. So I am very nice to everyone, but I cannot be nice to the blood people. They come in so early. They poke you. I mean, usually they're pretty good, but when you have a transplant and you're being poked every day, your veins get really bad, you know, and if like sometimes they can't get it. So one night or one morning they came in asking to take my blood and I just told them no. I refused and made them leave. So my doctor came in like two hours later and she was like, you have to let them take your blood. <laughs> See, I, I was a bit the same last, like when I was just admitted to have that plasma thoresis, cause it was, they 
do it every morning, take the bloods. And the one lady that there was two women that would be on rotation and one of them was so rough. And I have really shitty little veins as it is. And because of all the bloods I'd had taken and just, you know, my veins where they normally can get them were all scarred up. And I, yeah, I was, by the end of it, I was like, no, you cannot take it. (laughs) Yeah, please go away. Yeah, it was just, but then it's funny because I get my monthly bloods. Because in Australia, the transplant list works a little bit differently to over in the States. Um, So we actually don't have a priority system. So I've met people that go on the list and they've been given a heart like three days after being listed. But then there's some people that, you know, like myself who I think it's coming up to close to six months. And um, sorry, I don't know where I was going with that. (laughs) Sorry, I just had a long moment. You know what? I remember that. I like the heart failure brain. Oh my God. Like my memory was so bad. I had a hard time like with basic word retrieval for the longest time. And I mean, it's amazing what like blood flow and proper oxygen can do for you, right? Like <laughs> I feel like a whole new person. Oh, that's good. I, oh, it's come back now. Yeah, so every every month I go to the Red Cross and get my bloods taken for the tissue typing. And then they send the results out to every hospital within Australia and New Zealand. So I could get an organ from New Zealand as well. But um, I have my one lady there that can get the vein and she gets it on the first go every time. So <laughs> I, she's not available. I go, no, no, I'm waiting for her. Well, those monthlies will not stop anytime soon. After your transplant, I'm sure they've already talked to you about this. You need like a series of of biopsies. And at first they're like, at first they might be once a week, but you're obviously still in the hospital recovering when that's going on. So like, it's kind of hard to keep, tra- I think it's once a week at first, at least at the Cleveland Clinic. And then it goes down to once every two weeks. And then it goes down to once a month. I'm currently at once every six weeks now. And I have my very last one in like less than a month. Um, I have it like the beginning of April. Yep. And after that, I am done with biopsies. They'll do a, they'll do like, it's called like a mapping or something every three months. And they can tell from there whether or not like they, if they, if there's certain numbers that come up, then they'll do a biopsy to check for rejection. But if those numbers are fine, then they just don't do a biopsy. So fingers crossed, last whatever. And how are the biopsies? Cause oh, they are suck. They like a heart cath or? Um, uh, well, have you had heart caths through your neck? Yes. I don't, oh. it was funny. I, the re- basically my whole life, I've only had them ever through my, Groin, the veins in my groins, and then yep, same. Yeah, because of the Glen. Yeah, and then the um, when I had to have my heart cast for the workup, they did it down the neck, and I was so because I've only ever been put like mildly put to sleep for it, and I was I couldn't feel it, but I was wide awake. It was such a weird feeling. I was like, oh, I don't know if I like this. <laughs> yeah, so they do. It's the some. 
some facilities will do like a Versed or, or whatever for them, but Cleveland Clinic doesn't. And it sounds like your facility does not either. They just do lidocaine in the neck and then, you know, they put the, they put the tubes in and do it like that. And, you know, the first couple were all right, but then scar tissue starts to build up in your neck and then they start to really suck. Um, my second to last one, I had a straight up panic attack on the table. I mean, granted, oh, the fellow that was doing it, oh, since I have a pacemaker and they have to go like, they have to navigate around these pacer wires when they're getting the, the tissue samples. And it's, I mean, it looks hard. Like I have my neck turned and I can watch it on the screen and it looks hard. But this one particular guy, it was impossible for him. He was digging in my neck for like over an hour. And these things usually take 20 minutes. Um, oh so I, I had a panic attack and I was like bawling my eyes out in in the room and like refusing to ever have another one done. And um, I have a, I have a special psychiatrist who's like a heart failure psychiatry specialist. And, you know, he follows me and, and he gave me a prescription for like Valium or I think it was Valium um, that I take before my biopsies now. And they are fine because that stuff works. Yeah. No, it's, um, I, I don't know whether it's also maybe because I'm a bit older now, but I've found like, obviously, like I said before, because of the experience I had after the last surgery, um, but I have found just the procedures and general, um, the, I, the feeling I feel when I go into the hospital now I think a lot of that too has to do with maybe I'm a bit older and you are a bit more I don't know see things for what they are whereas you're a bit oblivious when you're younger you're mm-hmm. going with armor whereas I've, I've found I'm I'm way more sensitive now I'm older like I'm like ooh, way more cautious I am not more sensitive to it but I'm annoyed like mm. I thought, like, I had very, very high expectations for transplant. And, you know, my doctors would, of course, like, try to talk me down, like, okay, like, you know, don't maybe, maybe don't set such lofty goals. Like, I had told my doctors I was going to complete a triathlon a year after my heart transplant. I'm not even close. Okay. So, like, that's how I was expecting to feel. So, I was also expecting, like, oh, like, I'm not going to have to go to the hospital as much anymore. And, you go to the hospital way more after your transplant, at least through the first year. Like I live there. I'm at the hospital like twice a week just for random stuff. Like whether it's a biopsy or a pacemaker check, or uh, I have to meet with the infectious disease team, or I have to meet with my therapist or, you know, now I'm having these iron infusions and like I was in bed for so long leading up to my transplant that I ended up with like pretty bad back pain. So now I get acupuncture once a week and it's just like, I'm constantly there and I'm so annoyed. I'm so ready to not ever be at a hospital again, but I'm not really like sensitive to it. It's almost like it's a full-time job being sick. Like I can't, I cannot get a job right now because the amount of time I would have to request off I would just get fired within the first week. 
It's so um, – and do you struggle – I don't know if it's the same over there, but over here I – um, like we are so lucky in Australia because we do get a lot of our healthcare is free, um, but I've had to stop work, but I'm not entitled to any benefit or financial assistance of the government. Why? <clears throat> so – they have this clause or this, I don't know, l- rule, I guess. So if they, if you're in a de facto or married partnership, oh. they, so they basically have said my partner earns too much, which mm-hmm. is fine when we had my income coming in as well. But you take my income away and, you know, we're living off one wage, paying rent, living expenses, all the bills, trips to and from Sydney, all my medication, and then once I have the transplant, I then have to live in Sydney for three months. So accommodation down there, not really that much. So it's like... Yeah. um, So I think that's... It's the same way in the US. I'm just not you know, I'm single. So I didn't think about that. But yeah, I get um, since I'm single, and I don't work, I get Medicaid and Medicare. So everything I don't pay for anything for health insurance. Like, I think I might pay like a dollar per prescription. And obviously, like you're on a ton of medication for the rest of your life after your transplant. So I spend like 30 bucks a month in medicine. But other than that, I don't pay for anything. Um, And, you know, I get, of course, disability because I'm single and I don't work. Um, And I was lucky enough to, like, I live in Cleveland, near the Cleveland, like, I'm five minutes away from the Cleveland Clinic. So I didn't have to worry about, like, the whole accommodation thing. Yeah. And my parents are about an hour away. But I do remember them saying if you're more than, like, I think it's two hours away, you have to stay for the first three months. It's the same thing here. Yeah. Yeah, it's, that's one thing. Like, but in saying that, I try and look at the blessings because I know a lot of people, especially in other countries, and I couldn't imagine going through this, like, if you are elderly or something and you can't work and you don't have a partner. Like, Yeah. I follow this one woman on Instagram who, oh, my God, I feel so bad for her. She has you know, congenital heart defect. She's had a couple open heart surgeries and she's homeless. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? Like I, I still, even though I have a new heart, I still take such comfort in my bed, my hot yeah. shower. I mean, even though you feel better, like you, you'll still have a lot of days where you're just really tired, especially if you did a lot the day before. You won't, you shouldn't have that like, I remember in heart failure, I felt like I had the flu every single day. Oh, yeah. Every day. Like I've been struck down with like, I just malice, like I just feel unwell all the time. Like, yep, I wasn't eating really. Um, Like, I just felt horrible. Like you wake up nauseated, you go to bed nauseated, headaches. And I don't feel that way anymore. I don't feel like I have the flu. But there are days where I'm just like, man, I really got to rest today. You know, I need to stay in bed and just take a day. And if I didn't have like these small luxuries of a comfortable bed and a hot shower, like it would make having a congenital heart defect so much harder. Oh, 
when I was going through the thick of it before I got diagnosed with the heart failure, I, I, I joke, but I actually turned into the crazy bath lady because it was the only thing that would calm me. I yeah. Like four baths a day. I was like, nobody, Same. nobody talk. I'm just going to bathe. It's so funny, like how similar we are. Oh my God. I You're the first person I've met, like same story. Five time open heart surgery survivor waiting on the transplant. Even the Glenn. I can't believe you had a Glenn. Oh, oh that horrible thing. <laughs> I never had that. <laughs> Do you know what that did to me? It made my neck and my face like really fat. It, yeah. My vein in my neck is always raised, and my sister's nicknamed the vein in my neck, Unsi, because <laughs> it always looks like it's having a dance party. Like it goes so out of whack, and it goes a million miles an hour, and it looks like it's having a little rave in my neck. Yeah, my neck <laughs> just got so big, my face got big, and then of course, so like after my after they put in the Arvad and they took you know, they took the Glen down during that procedure. There was like a while there where I had a normal neck and a normal face. Well, then of course you get the transplant and you get put on very high doses of steroids, which do the same thing. They make your face fat and your neck fat. So now like I'm done with that. Like the steroids, I don't, I don't have to worry about that anymore, but I was on them for, you know, a year and I am finally, I'm looking in the mirror and my face is getting thin again and my neck is going back to normal. And I'm just like, oh my God, there you are. Like I haven't seen this face since I was like 16. I, I have a fear of that because obviously I'm hoping I'm being really optimistic here, but it is going to, I'm going to get my heart in time to have our wedding, but I'm like, oh good God, I'm going to be a fat, bald bride. Like with all the steroids and everything. <laughs> um, so I didn't I didn't have any hair loss from it. Um I had so obviously I had they call it moon face. I had that. I look at pictures of myself in like June, July when I was on the highest dose compared to now. And it's like I didn't I don't I can't believe I went out in public. Like looking at those pictures, I'm like, who let me out of the basement? Oh my God. Um, but it goes away. So I dealt with that and I dealt with just acne, you know, like I have a very rigorous skincare routine before my transplant, my skin was like perfect. And now I've got like the hormonal acne, but again, like now that I'm off it and it's coming out of my body, like, you know, the cortisol is coming out of my body that's getting much better. And I also grew like some hair on my, like all over, not like a mustache or anything, but I just got like little baby hairs, like on my face and I shaved my face for a while, but that also went away with being off the steroids. And of course I was so hungry. Oh my God. Like I gained probably 15 pounds while I was on steroids. And you know what? At first I was really depressed about it. And then at one point I just decided like, you know what? It's only a year. I'm just going to eat. Like I'm hungry. I'm just going to eat and whatever weight I gain, I'll just deal with it later. And I mean, it came off so fast. Like I'm even lower than I was before the transplant now. Like as soon as you're off the steroids, it, it, as long as you're like going to the gym and eating healthy. And then I quit being hungry as well. Like as soon as they take them away, that hunger goes away too. Oh, that's good to know. 
So just, you know, just roll with it for the first year and then just know that a year later, you'll be great. Oh, I actually, it's so good to see your <clears throat> videos of you at the gym and stuff because it's such a positive light, like I was saying before with the negative aspect of some some of the support groups. It's good to see that because I... I remember when I first got listed, I had this moment where it dawned on me and I was like, holy crap, I'm going to be able to, because because of my condition, I've never actually been able to go for a run, like a proper run before. So I've never really gone for a run, but because it was my normal, it didn't bother me. And then I was like, holy shit, I'm going to be able to finally go for a run. And I lived in Canada for like four years and I couldn't do a lot of the hikes because of the altitude and how steep they were. Yeah. So I, I was like, oh, my God, I'm actually going to be able to go on a proper hike. Like, so it was sort of, it sounds like it was kind of a weird excitement as well because I'm like, I'm going to be able to do all these things that I've never been able to do before, like, so make sure that you go to your cardiac rehab. Um, I did not go to cardiac rehab this time around because I broke my foot pretty shortly oh. after I got home from my transplant. And yeah. so like, of course, how are you going to do cardiac rehab with a broken foot? Um, so I was, you know, I was on, I had like a knee crutch. So it was like a hands-free crutch. Um, I was on that for like, I don't know, like eight 10 weeks, maybe 12. Mm-hmm. And uh, right after I got off of that, I went to Louisiana, like the week I got off of that. And I came home. And like three days later, I got COVID. And okay. I had COVID. Yeah. <laughs> so like, I mean, this really put my like getting back into the gym plan. I mean, it postponed it by like three months. So then I had yeah. COVID for three weeks. And then like, you know, even though I was fine with COVID, I like it, you know, it kind of screws with your stamina. So yeah. I feel like I'm still struggling with that a little bit. Um, and, you know, I, I did start kind of experimenting with some running finally, but I took a huge hit not being able to do that cardiac rehab. Um, and, you know, now I'm having to rehab myself a year, a year yeah. later than I should have been. But so yeah. go to that, like, you know, make that a priority. And I think that you will be running in no time. Me, I always thought I wanted to run. And then now with how much I'm able to like, I love to weight train. So with how much I'm able to weight train now, I don't really care to run. Um, but it would be nice. Like I love to dance. I danced my whole life. Uh, I knew when I was a dancer that there was, I knew obviously I wasn't the same as the other kids because I would get winded way before they would. And obviously like I had had surgeries already. Um, but I like the main reason that I was so excited about getting a transplant was because I was like, I cannot wait to go to the club and just dance my little heart out. Like no pun intended. I have not done that yet. I haven't because this will be like my first summer to where I actually feel good. You know, last summer, my heart was so new. Like I said, I had the broken foot and COVID and all of that. So, I mean, we'll see how that goes this summer. I don't really like to go out in the winter. Um, but I'm excited to like go to a club and dance. I don't really drink, but 
you know, I'll have like a glass of wine here and there, but I do like to like go out with my friends and be the sober one and go experience like the whole club thing. So we'll see how that goes. That'll be fun. I actually, um, sorry, I, I actually always joke because I try to find the humor in it all. But um, after the last two surgeries that I had as an adult and I attend it now pre-transplant, <laughs> but I, I go to cardiac rehab and it's like racing all the gold golden oldies around the hospital. <laughs> the closest person in age is like a 30 year age difference. <laughs> so funny. Oh my god. Yeah, the first time I went to cardiac rehab, I think I was like 19. And yeah, same thing. Everyone in there was like 65 and they're all like they're doing like the seated like hand pedaling. And I'm yes. over there, like, going on the elliptical for 30 minutes. And I'm like, what is going on? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, so, man. But, um, yeah, so it's been – but that's so – it's so cute. Yeah. I remember the first time I went, I was only, like, 21. And um, it, every week it was the same question because you'd always have one or two newbies. And they're like, you look a little young to be in here. <laughs> yeah yeah you know I'm gonna miss those days like when I'm like in my 50s I'm really gonna miss the days where people would look at me and they'd be like you're too young to have had heart surgery you're too young to have had all this stuff go wrong with you like I'm kind of gonna miss it because like right now I feel so badass but like when I'm in my 50s when people look at me they're just gonna assume I'm like every other 56 year old who's had bypass surgery yeah it's um... <laughs> I find it really surreal. Like, I think it's weird. Like, I don't know how to explain it, but when somebody asks who doesn't know me, even, like, before we got to transplant, if someone would ask about my scar, like, I would say it like it was no big thing, like, so enchilant. I'd be like, oh, you know, what happened to your scar? Oh, I've had four at that stage. I'd had four, like. This was when I was traveling and stuff. Oh, I've had four heart surgeries. And and you just see the look of sheer horror or shock on their face, like, huh? And then it's funny because then once you say it out loud, it's almost like I realize it too. I'm like, oh, yeah, holy shit, that's a lot. Like, it's yeah, like, I, you say it. Same like reaction. It, it was like I was telling them my favorite color. Yeah. And they're like, what? And I do it with my transplant too. And like, You'll notice after your transplant, when you tell people like the word transplant makes them understand it like a hair more than just saying open heart surgery, because like open heart surgery, when I came back to dance for the first time after my first one, when I was 12, one of my teachers literally looked at my scar and said, oh, they actually had to cut you open. And I was mind blown that she asked me that. I was just like, "Uh, yeah. Oh, wait, you've probably had this before. I still, and these are intelligent people, have actually asked me. So when's the transplant? Oh, my God, yes. The, like, I'm like, constantly. What? I'm like, well, I don't know. Oh, I'm like, well, they don't have a stack of hearts stored in the cool room. Like, yeah, are people oh. saying, like, so, so have you found a donor yet? I'm like, what? Yeah. <laughs> What? <laughs> I'm, I'm like, like yeah, I, I, Joe over I, here just 
decided that a month from now he's gonna willingly die so I can have his heart. Like I just I don't understand. Like how yeah, it's bizarre that people ask that. But okay. And it's so funny because a lot of the people that have asked are like highly intelligent. And you see them like sort of puzzled going and I've actually had to say once or twice, well I have to you know, you have to wait for someone to pass away. And they're like, Oh, oh and then it's like it dawns on them (laughs) and then you have to explain you know like heart and lung isn't like a kidney transplant like you can't it has to be a whole heart from like a whole person who only has one of those things that they cannot live without and I I found it too a lot of um there was some of my friends like when I first got listed or when I was doing the workup one of my friends was quite intrigued and interested and she didn't realize that obviously like being a donor, they have to pass away obviously in hospital or be like on the life support because they have to, I hate using that word, but harvest the Mm, organ. Yeah. You know what I mean? And she goes, oh, so you couldn't just get their organs if they died in a car crash. And I was like, what scoop it up off the road (laughs) like like. yeah yeah it has to be I mean hearts have to be a very specific you know kind of death to still be viable which is why you know the pool is so low and people also don't realize like just like hearts are rare like getting a heart transplant is a rare thing and even even to be listed you have to be there are so much, at least in the U.S., that you have to, like, prove and go through. You have to be mentally sound. You have to be yeah. somewhat, you know, physically fit. It's like a fine line. You have to be sick enough, but not too okay. sick. Yeah, that uh, was the same you, here. I had to do, like, yeah, all the psych tests. and. Yep. You can't be grossly overweight. You can't be a smoker. You have to pass drug tests. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have to – you have to prove that you can – financially afford it like for me it wasn't a big deal because I have Medicaid and Medicare but you know the people who have like husbands and wives um who who have income and health insurance they have to prove that they're going to be able to financially afford the medications and all of the because they're not they can't they can't give somebody a heart who can't take their medicine I mean you don't take your medicine you die this isn't like yeah, you know, see that—that's where I—I I do feel blessed because I have spoken and connected with a few people like yourself that live in the states, and I, yeah, that's one thing I do feel like I couldn't imagine. Like even though I'm not avail- eligible for assistance here, I'm still living comfortably and will still be able to get by. But I couldn't imagine. Even when I connected with people who had just general heart surgery, I was like, and the costs that some of them would say that they were up for, I was like, I couldn't imagine going through something as big as heart surgery or a transplant and then on top of that having the added pressure of being able to afford it, if that makes sense. Like it just Yeah, and, you know, some people... Some people go right back to work a couple of months after transplant and other people, I mean, I'll be honest with you. I don't know if I'm ever going to go back to work just because, you know, it's still unpredictable with the days I'm going to feel good, the days I'm not. 
and taking care of yourself before and after transplant is a full-time job. Just making sure you're getting enough sleep, preparing your meals correctly. You know, your body, your body just hurts after six open heart surgeries. You are just forever in a crazy amount of pain. And I don't know if I could mentally handle like working outside of my house ever again. Yeah. Uh, It just seems like a lot. And, you know, I'm not like, I'm not saying I'm like not mentally stable. I am, but I think that having to work a job that I had to like show up at a time on a day, you know, being, I used to be, I was terrified when I did work, I was terrified to call off if I had a day where I wasn't feeling well, because I didn't want to like get fired or I didn't want people to think I was using my heart condition as an excuse. And I had, I had coworkers. I used to be a bartender at a pretty high volume bar. And sometimes I would give up like half of a shift because we would do like 18 hour shifts on the weekends. And I knew I'm like, I can't do that. So I would give up a half of a shift and I would have coworkers like basically alluding to the fact that like I was faking it. Yeah. Far down my chest that I was faking it. This was before like, you know, I was an end stage heart failure But just like the PTSD, I mean, not really PTSD, but just like the trauma from that of people saying that to me, I don't ever want to be in that position again. So like I'm working for myself or no one. End of story. I've actually, um, I've sort of thought about maybe like once I'm, you know, like still recovering, but out of the scary stage, once I get discharged, I'm thinking of actually doing like a photography course or something because I am the same I don't want to rush back into work because I want to focus on my recovery but I also want to do something where I can work on my own terms because you know I have heard it can be quite unpredictable after transplant and I it was funny I always even in school and then later in adulthood and when I first started working in that it's only started clicking in the last couple of years since I've been diagnosed and I've done a bit of research and found out more and more about my my condition I was actually born with I just thought I was a bit of a little lazy bitch at school and work like I because it would take me longer to understand stuff I you know uh, my concentration Sometimes I have trouble concentrating my attention span. I would get tired some days, like, you know, I, I'd try to go to work, but I couldn't give, you know, my 110%. And I actually, it wasn't until recently in the last few years that all this has come out and it's actually, I'm like, well, no, that all, that actually probably comes hand in hand with my heart condition. Like, yeah, yep. Like I was never, like, yeah, like at school I thought that I was just a bit of a dumbass. But now I'm older, I'm like, actually, no, I probably, like, was really struggling and it was probably because I didn't have a proper functioning heart and, you know, the after effects of, you know, the first few years of my life being on heavy meds and in and out of hospital and 
you know, it's- now that I have had the transplant, like I went to college and it was miserable. Um, I just couldn't do it. And now that I've had the heart transplant and I realize how differently my brain works, I'm like, I want to go back. Yeah. I'm so pumped to learn. I do so much now. Like I've been practicing French and like I do all this research and I'm just so motivated. And I had never been that way before. Like I thought, yes, I, never. I thought that I was super lazy unless it came to like dance. I've always been motivated for fitness. Even when I was like at my sickest, I tried my absolute hardest. But when it came to like, other stuff like cognitive function type things yes yeah I thought I was so lazy or so dumb and I just realized I'm not yeah no I hear you right there I was the same and I just couldn't I got into like the I would get into like my creative things like I remember I really liked drama and singing and stuff like that but when it come to actually using my brain and you know cognitive skills I struggled and I remember when I was younger mum actually went and saw someone because I was really struggling and they said that it could be to do with my heart condition but they said I forget what what name it was but he actually told mum when you give Kyra instructions, you can't give her a whole heap at once because she doesn't hear anything, like she doesn't process all the information. So if you told her to walk down the stairs, pick up the washing basket, get the washing out of the washing machine, hang it on the line and walk back up the stairs, she'd just go downstairs, pick up the basket and walk back up the stairs. She doesn't process anything in the middle. You need to give her directions like one at a time because it's just the way that her brain operates and I I think that's why like dance worked so well for me because rather than somebody telling me directions I just watched and I mimicked you know yeah because I'm the same at, at, at jobs like when I would start a new job you could give me something to read or talk at me and it would not sink in but you show it to me in two seconds I've got it down pat yeah like, and I still, still pretty much learn that way but learning the other way with the reading has been a lot easier I've always loved to read but like the last several years when I was in heart failure I would read books and like completely forget what they were even about and now I actually like learn a lesson from these books I just don't forget what I even read I, I gave a book recently I had read this book uh, before I got my transplant while I was in the hospital waiting. And I, I do this thing when I'm reading where if I come across a word that I don't know what it means, or I'm like not comfortable using in a sentence, I'll underline it. So I can like go back and look up the definition later or something. So I gave this book to my dad that I had done that with. And I gave it to him like a couple weeks ago, actually. And I said, Oh, there's like a bunch of words in there that are underlined. Those are just words that like, I want to get better at using. And he opens a and he I can't remember what the word was but he read it to me and he goes you don't know what that means and I go huh I do after my transplant I know exactly what that means but before my transplant it was like a simple word too and I just couldn't I could not remember what it meant oh that's hilarious my um my poor pal my partner I think I see the pain in his face every day like he'll be talking to me and then I'll ask a question he's like we literally just spoke about that I'm like, oh my they? god 
Well, it, it doesn't, like, immediately snap back 100%, but it definitely slowly, and like, gets better and better and better. Oh, that's good, because at the moment I'm like, huh? I don't remember having that conversation. Just shakes the- his head and walks away. I'm like, sorry. The first six months after transplant are really hard. Um, yeah. I mean, you'll have a period you'll I mean you'll probably have a pretty long period where you're like this was a mistake because uh, it's it's hard to explain but like I felt very since I've always been so into like the mind body connection when I woke up and realized that I had a different heart in my body that was not my own I had an extremely hard time connecting to it I felt like I was like, yeah, I felt like I was just a brain walking around attached to a Frankenstein body. And I still have days where I feel like that, but it's like gotten a lot better. And I don't have those days often where it used to be a constant thing. Um, And have they talked to you about the shaking that you're going to go through yet? They haven't, but a lot of people have informed me is is it to do with like your meds or is it an yeah. yeah so your 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 transplant meds your uh, immunosuppressants like when I woke up no one I didn't know this because I had never been on a support group or anything like that until after my transplant and like I said I didn't read any of the literature that they gave me so yeah. I did not know about this shaking that I was going to go through and I woke up from surgery or from I don't know it was probably like the third day like I had had my breathing tube out and all of that. And I went to reach for like my ice chips on my own for the first time. And I spilled them. And I'm like, okay, that's weird. And like my nurse refilled it. And same thing, I spilled them again. And I look at my hands and they're shaking so badly. I thought that they fucked me up. I was terrified. I'm like, oh my God, something happened. They cut some nerve to my brain. I don't have control of my arms anymore. Like what is happening? And then, the, yeah. you know, my first told me like that it was my meds. So like the longer you're on them, you get a little more used to it and the shaking gets better. I, I've heard that in some people it goes away completely. That has not happened for me yet. So I find that to be extremely annoying. Um, yeah. So like, it's hard to like put on mascara you talked about taking a photography class. If you're going to do that, I highly recommend getting a tripod because it's really hard for me to take pictures like on my phone or whatever. I have like a little mini tripod that I set up when I take video and stuff at the gym. Um, It's hard to, I used to like to cross stitch. I cannot cross stitch anymore. My hands would be a bloody mess from poking myself so much. (laughs) And I also notice it like I shake my whole body shakes but I mostly notice my hands but when I am lifting weights I can feel it throughout my whole body because it makes it kind of hard to like keep proper form because my whole body is just like rapidly shaking um I don't know if it'll ever go away I hope it does it it makes me feel pretty agitated like my body's agitated so then my brain Yeah. 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 So like, since my body feels that way, my brain feels that way and I want to stop it. And like, I've always been a believer that your brain can heal your body and, but it's not like an immediate thing. You like really, really, really have to work at it. So 
that's something I've been focusing on, just trying to like make the shakes go away. But like healing yourself is exhausting. Um, oh, don't know, don't know. frustrate you; it'll get better. It um, like some days, <laughs> it's funny. Some days I get in all get in a mood, and I'm like all gun ho about you know that's it. I'm gonna meditate today. I'm gonna go to yoga, and I'm all positive about it. And then other days I'm like. Oh, stuff it. I'm just going to wallow in self-pity today. It's too hard. <laughs> like... I, I used to meditate all the time and I finally am doing it again, but I went through like a big period where like after my transplant where I wasn't doing it and it was because I felt so agitated. And of course, like the steroids, oh my God, they make you not very nice. Um, I was actually going to ask about that because I've noticed lately too, and I think it's just everything that's happening and I tried to explain it but the last week or two I've been an absolute witch to everybody I've just been so grumpy and I think it's because there's so much that's happening at the moment that's out of my control when little things happen or I get confused about things that I can have control over I've been snapping lately because it's just like I just feel at a loss sometimes because it's like nothing's in my control. So So my family tells me that they're like, it seems like when you got your heart transplant, you also had a personality transplant because I guess I'm like way nicer, way more rational. However, the steroids will give you like situational slash random bursts of being a horrible bitch like horrible worse than I've ever been in my life but like I'm not dealing with that anymore but like while I was you know on high doses of steroids yeah like I could be a real bitch um but you know that makes the steroids make you feel agitated they make your brain agitated so I went through a long period where I just could not meditate and my mom would always be like, why aren't you meditating anymore? And I would just like make her laugh and say, Oh, my new heart doesn't like meditation. Yeah. <laughs> but eventually, you know, with your, with that, do you find, cause I find sometimes I get quite frustrated, but then I feel guilty cause I know it's coming from a loving place, but I have like, I call it like toxic positivity. Like, Sometimes it does get frustrating because I'll have loved ones or friends or family members, you know, if I'm having an off day or it's getting really hard, you know, they're like, oh, just think positive. <laughs> it's like, oh, I yeah, to. I don't want to. <laughs> this situation is shit. <laughs> like, <laughs> uh, yeah, I... So what I thought got kind of toxic was everyone, like, I honestly felt like, like I said a few times during this podcast, I'm glad I did it. Like, don't, I wouldn't say like, don't do it. But for a long time, up until I really started feeling a lot better, which was like two months ago, Yeah. up until that point. I had done it and I decided to do the transplant 98% for my family because I, yeah. they were so like, 
they were so positive about it. They were so excited about it. I could see the pain in their faces when I would talk about not wanting to do it. And like, that's what I did it for. And, you know, like I said, I'm glad I did it, but I don't think that was necessarily like the healthiest thing, but it goes back to the whole invisible illness. People just do not get it. No. When a cancer patient says they're done fighting and they're done with chemo, everyone accepts it. When a congenital heart defect patient who has had countless open heart surgeries says they're done fighting, people don't understand. Yeah. No, I agree with you there. It's definitely been, I don't know. And it's hard to, because it comes from, I feel like there's been definitely times throughout this journey that I feel like I have gotten a psychologist now because there are times where I feel like I don't really have anyone to talk to or I can't let my guard down because the minute I do, everybody around me, my support system freaks out and they're like, oh, like, you know, you're going to be fine. Like whereas some days, you know, just because I'm having a bad day and I have a breakdown or I'm crying, that doesn't mean that I've given up. It just means that I'm having an off day. But I feel like I can't really do that with any of my support people at the moment because when I do, I guess similar to what you said, you see the, you know, the worried look on their face and, like, you know, it's like... And there's also some things that, like, you don't want them to know because you know they would never understand. So when I turned like 19 or 20, I stopped letting my parents come to my doctor's appointments with me, my, you know, my cardiology appointments. And it made them so mad. They didn't understand why. And I did it for two reasons. One, I've always been so reliant on my parents' health that it was just something that made me feel a little bit more like an adult and a little bit more independent. Um, and two, I just decided that there were things they didn't need to know. Yeah. Well, it, it wasn't worth like stressing them out over it. So I just stopped letting them come and they couldn't understand it. But like, I, I like to think that I saved them like a lot of worry. And whenever I would find out that I needed another open heart surgery, I wouldn't tell them for like a while. Like I would know for like, I don't know, six months. And I would tell them two or three months before and it saved them. It saved them four months of worrying, you know? Um, So, yeah, I mean, they mean, well, it's just, it's hard to understand and it's hard for them to know how to react. And for us, it's like, you know, we got like, we try to protect these people. So we totally feel like we don't have anyone to talk to. And like I had said earlier, you are literally the first person I've talked to who's had, like uh, anywhere near a similar experience of me as me. Like I do follow like some congenital heart patients on Instagram and stuff, but like the majority of them, the majority of them had like one open heart surgery when they were a baby or something like that, or, yeah. or the transplant recipient who hates their life. Like the, yeah. the negative Nancy's on the, on the support groups we talked yeah. about the non support groups, the opposite of the support groups. Yeah. Yeah, My so. favorite thing about the support groups are the people who, this is sarcastic, the people who will bitch at you if you have one glass of wine. Meanwhile, they eat cheeseburgers seven days a week. 
Yeah. That blows my mind. Anytime anybody talks about food on the support groups, oh, live your life, do your, you know, do whatever you want to do. And then the minute anyone talks about like alcohol or pot, they get torn apart. That, yeah. That's hilarious to me. Hilarious. It, um, I met one guy in the support group and I will admit he was hilarious. So they do one of the support groups I was, I'm on, they do like a zoom every Friday. And when I first got listed, I did the zoom this one Friday. It was the one and only time. And there was one guy on it and he, I was like, yes, I need to converse with you because that's something I would do. He said he's had two transplants. I think he was lungs though. And he, he said, whatever you do, don't drink two bottles of wine and then get the call. I was like, what? <laughs> oh my God, I funny. got the call and I was at a dinner party and we just finished the second bottle of wine. I got the call. He drove himself, himself to the hospital. Oh, my and God. He said, I don't think I can have it. I've been drinking. And I said, no, no, you'll be fine. And he said, the last... Last thing I remember was the woman shaving me and <laughs> the older lady goes, oh, so you went in drunk and bald. Oh, my God. I so I think, I think they can, like, give you a ton of fluids to, like, flush it and sober you up. Yeah. I think. I'm sure that's probably what they did, but I do not recommend it. No, I don't, but it was so funny. I was like, I need to look you up. You're hilarious. But it was so funny because you should have seen the look of sheer horror on everybody else because it was all video. Oh, my <laughs> <God>. like... <laughs> I like, honestly, like sometimes I have been out like off of them for a while, but there was like a minute where I would like leave them and then join them again because I'm like, I'm a little instigator. I love to like start shit on there and just post that I'm doing stuff that I know people are going to hate. Like I started getting tattooed again, like a month. And I pray to God that none of my cardiologists listen to this, but I started doing it again. And like, here's my thing. Tattoo shops are not in dirty basements anymore. Like I'm sure a lot of doctors picture them to be. They are, you could practically do surgery where I get tattooed. Okay. So my artist knows me. He knows my medical history. He's very careful, wipes everything down twice, three times, whatever. We use Tegaderm after my tattoos, which is like the same thing that they put over like an IV site, like that, that like plastic sticky stuff. So we use that and I keep it on for like, I don't know, like five days and I take it off and I'm I'm basically healed as it is like already. But if, if people on, like I have a full back piece and I've gotten a lot of it done in the last month. Like I get tattooed like twice a month. So if I got on that support group and posted my back piece and said, post transplant gift to myself, holy shit, I would be torn. I don't want to do it. See, that's why I think I actually messaged you about that. It was a story you put up and I think you were in in the middle of a sitting getting some work done. And I was so happy to see that because that's something else. Like, I know they always tell you the worst case, but everyone's like, no. And I was like, but I like getting artwork done. I like my ink. 
just when your transplant pay, or when your transplant doctors like tell you that you can't get tattooed anymore or like whatever, just be like, Again, yeah. I'm not qualified to give medical advice, but just do whatever you want. Now, I would <laughs> recommend like waiting until you're off steroids because that's like the biggest thing. That's what yeah. keeps you from healing is the steroids. So, but like after that, I mean, shit, go for it. I started out smaller, like not smaller, but like shorter. Like, yeah, I went like at a couple hours just to see how my body reacted, how I did. And I was fine. So then I just started going for full days again. Okay. And I've been fine. That's good to know. Well, I just figure if they, you, like you said, a lot of tattoo parlors now are like surgical wards and you see them change the needle. So, <clears throat> yeah, I mean, they're in like the, they're in the pre wrap, like the plastic wrapped things that yeah. have the expiration dates on them and they're sealed and everything is wiped down with alcohol. And then like my artist like tortures me at the end and wipes my back or wherever I'm getting worked on, like done with, or he wipes me down with alcohol, like over and over and over. That's worse than getting the tattoo. How many times he wipes me down with alcohol and then puts the pegoderm on to make sure there's no bacteria. And of yeah. course, like you have to know your body, right? If you start, look at the tattoo. If it's kind of looking a little weird or getting a little bit red, like probably go to your doctor. Yeah. Like, don't wait till it's green. <laughs> no, it seems so good having people like yourself to look on because I think too... I think you mentioned this earlier on when we were chatting, like I think being congenital is a bit different because we've always had our condition. So I've always really like, I mean, my parents never really wrapped me in cotton wool and, you know, my dad's best advice my whole life was everything's good in moderation. So I don't know if that was a good thing to tell a 20 something year old, but you know, but um, like, so I know my limits and, you know, there's probably been a lot of stuff that I've done over the years that probably I shouldn't have done. But or if you were to go by a doctor, they probably would advise not to. But I think you hit the nail on the head there. I think it's, you know, a lot of people on those support groups are, you know, the transplant is their first major thing. So obviously I may feel I probably would act a little differently if, you know, I'd never had a surgery before and this was my first thing sort of, but I think it does make a difference that you congenital cause we've sort of grown up with it. So it's like, yeah. So we don't, we don't have to walk on eggshells because yeah, if we just, I mean, I and can imagine was... like Sorry. getting sick, getting sick at an older age when you've been healthy your whole life has to suck. Like, Oh yeah, going to is super healthy to just like you suddenly have this diagnosis, whether it's cancer, heart failure, or whatever. And oh, then, that like awful. Being somebody who's always been sick, like I don't like I don't know. Like I my like identity change happened the reverse of what most people's. Like most people go from healthy to sick. I went from sick to healthy. Yes. Yeah. So I just like it's always been like a mostly positive thing for me? I think for me, because I I was so sick when I was a baby, but I don't remember any of that. And then after that surgery, when I was six months old, like I came in leaps and bounds, like all of my, up until I was 21 years old. And then I bounced straight back from that surgery so well. So I had 
a little bit of the opposite to you. I had such, like, I was such a normal childhood. And then once I had that surgery when I was 21, I felt the best I'd ever felt. And then once I didn't bounce back from my last surgery in 2017, my fifth one, that is where I struggled because I'd never actually remembered or I there was never a time that my condition had stopped me from doing anything and now all of a sudden my body was failing and my body has is stopping me from doing something so so you telling me that you've never been able to run or those hikes in Canada were hard for you because of being a high altitude I mean that's you know that was your you were being stopped from doing those things now those were the main things I struggled with too endurance type athletics yeah um that's what I was mainly kept from doing. So that alone, you know, knowing that there were people that could run when I couldn't, knowing that I couldn't go on a hike or like I like to I like to ski and snowboard, like knowing that I couldn't go to like an actual mountain to do those things. And I'm here like snowboarding and skiing in Ohio on like basically hills because the altitude would be too much. I mean, those are things that you were kept from doing. So, yeah, you know, don't, don't think you were like always like completely, you know, like just no, as true. everything else or whatever. Yeah. I, I think that's the principle of like really, life. really train, change your life for sure. Yeah. It's, I was a bit naughty. I remember the first time I worked in the States, I got a job as a camp counselor in the Rocky Mountains. <laughs> And I don't recommend oh, that's this. Awesome. But, that's uh, awesome. But I lied to my cardiac team and I didn't tell them <laughs> that I was actually working in the Rocky Mountains. Yeah, you know, we <laughs> all have things we don't tell our cardiac team. And the way I look at it is <clears throat> I have had a heart condition longer than most of them have been practicing cardiology. So, like, I'm allowed to not tell them <laughs> Yeah, it was. I remember my partner at the time like was horrified, and he got so cranky at me. What? He's like, you needed to tell them. I was like, no, I want them to sign off to say I'm able to go. Yeah, I mean, you'll have you'll have so many rules after transplant, but like, I just. I follow some of them. Like I don't take risks that are dumb. Like for me and everybody's like risks that they're willing to take are different. Like I don't, you know, you're not allowed to eat like undercooked meat or raw fish anymore. I don't, I don't care. Like, that's fine. Like, yeah, I like sushi. Like I liked my steaks rare, but it's not like that important to me. Like I'm not going to take that risk, but, but like the tattoos, that's important to me. Like I kind of, my like whole quote unquote like brand started because I did tattoo modeling. Like that kind of became like that gave me my start, like outside of working for somebody else. And it's, I'm really, really into it. And it's like so important to me. So I wasn't willing to give that up forever. You know, they don't want you to swim in, they don't want you to swim in lakes anymore after a transplant because lakes can be like kind of dirty. Well, my parents have a cottage on this like beautiful lake in Canada and like, I'm like, I grew up like water skiing and like open water swimming. I'm not going to like not do that. 
Yeah, so I've been like, told yeah. about that, but I was the same. I'm like, uh, I'm sure if you can tell if it's clean water or not. Like, And, you know, the biggest thing is, is like, don't swallow it. Don't get it up your nose, which yeah. sometimes, you know, sometimes, like, especially when you're, like, doing, like, water sports, like skiing, like, sometimes that's unavoidable. But, like, if it happens, you just got to pay attention to your body. If you start feeling kind of weird or you get a, like, low-grade fever, get your ass to the doctor right away and get on an antibiotic like it's not like I'm I'm not recommending it by any means but I'm saying that if it's like something that's like really important to you don't put yourself in a bubble and not live your life yeah oh my god I'm I'm praying that none of my cardiology friends listen to this episode they are gonna kill me (laughs) that's one thing I actually have tried to like make a promise to myself and I've actually voiced with the team and that I I've never let my condition hold me back so I don't want to once I have the transplant start doing that then if that makes sense like obviously I'm going to be careful but I'm getting my whole reasoning for wanting or agreeing to have the transplant is so I can still live my life and feel it better and you know, so that's one big thing, like, I have to keep reminding myself is just, like, not to, I guess, because it's a little hard sometimes with all these rules and regulations and then all the outside noise of, you know. Yep. Now, would I jump in a lake or roll around in the dirt if I had an open cut? No. No. Yeah. But, like, you know, I'm not going to, like, I'm not going to knock it in if I, if those things aren't going on, but yeah, I mean, those are the times where you have to like think smart, like, okay, like I cut my hand two days ago, probably shouldn't get in a lake right now. Yeah. That's like common sense. So you do have to be a little bit more careful in like those regards, but I mean, I haven't had, let me think, is this accurate? I mean, I haven't had any infections. When I had COVID, I got a sinus infection that I went on an antibiotic for. But like, I mean, I've cut myself a couple times, you know, I've gotten the tattoo. I have not had an infection yet. Yeah. No, so it'll be fine. You'll be fine. It'll be hard at first, but then it'll be worth it and you'll be fine. And of course, you know, you can always call me or whatever. No, I will. I'll take you up on that. Now we just need to put all the good juju out there that I'll get the call soon because... Yes, everyone listening to this, put out the good vibes and the prayers and the juju and whatever else you believe in that Kara gets the call soon, Um, like before her wedding, like a while before her wedding so she has time to recover and doesn't have to reschedule. I know. I can't be a a, uh, fat moon face, bold bride. (laughs) (laughs) When is your wedding? June 2023. Okay, so if you get the call before June of this year, by the time you get around to 2023, your moon face should be gone. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, fingers crossed for that. Couple more months. We can do this. Yeah. Oh, thank you for chatting. Oh my God, thank you for coming on. Like when, when I told you that, you know, I, I said to you like, oh my God, it's, it's so much to text. We should have a phone call about this. And then it dawned on me like, we should totally make this a podcast episode. And I was so glad that you said yes. Like this is yeah, that 
one of the best podcast episodes I've done just because I think it kind of helped me be a little bit more like open about all the shit we deal with. Yeah. No, and it's so good to have connected with someone like you who has such a similar background, but then also gets it too and is living life like not yeah it's it's a positive to have people like you when people like when you're going through transplant and you're pre-transplant it's nice to have people like you to see that you know yeah like there does come a bit of stuff that comes with transplant but relatively life is pretty normal and good after it so it's good yep Yes, absolutely. We will have to do uh, a part two of this when you are a year out from transplant. Yeah. And we will have to talk about the differences after you get the heart. And maybe I've always wanted to go to Australia. So maybe I will come to Australia and we can do it in person. I love the thought of being in Australia. It's just such a long time. Oh, my God. There's always a spare room here. And who knows? Maybe we might. (laughs) jump over to the states when we're in Canada next year what part of Canada do you guys go to um we're getting married in Squamish in BC so it's like oh okay over on the west side then yeah yeah okay so my parents cottage is in Canada but it's in Ontario so on the east side yeah Yeah. is that on like yeah is that in Muskoka uh no it's on Killarney oh okay yeah no, we've got a few friends that live over that way. <laughs> so if you come down to the States, definitely let me know or whatever. Maybe we'll uh, get the chance to meet up. Otherwise, I'll see you in Australia. Yes, you're more than welcome. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much for coming on. Nice chatting with you. You too. Bye. Bye. Well, everyone, if you are still listening to this after almost two hours, you are the real ones. Thank you so much for your support. It was so wonderful to have Kara on. I will definitely be having her back after her transplant. Um, Stay tuned. I have some really exciting content and some really exciting guests coming up for you guys in the next few weeks. Bye. So here's Jamie. Um... What is the first thing that got you into fitness? So I have been sort of athletic my entire life, and I've always gravitated towards sort of acrobatic type fitness. So um, I did gymnastics and cheerleading growing up and in high school. Um, And then I, after that was done in college, I got into yoga. That was sort of acrobatic and flexibility based. And then when I was in my medical residency, actually, I took my first pole fitness class and just absolutely fell in love. And I've been doing that ever since. Um, How did you find pole? Why did you choose to go to that direction? I was living in Cleveland and it was my first winter in Cleveland, which was very depressing. I didn't have a lot of friends. It was freezing cold. So I was looking for just other communities to get involved with. Um, and I ended up finding a Groupon for a pole fitness class. And I took one class and like I said, I fell in love. I immediately after my first class, I bought a pole and put it up in my apartment. Uh, 
And it's just a really great community um, of women supporting other women. Of course, uh, men do it as well. Uh, but it's a great com community. There's a competition aspect to it as well. There's always something to learn and uh, the boundaries are kind of always being pushed farther and farther and farther as to what I can do and what other people can do. And so that's really exciting. So when you first started, how often were you training? Because now it's like every day. Um, I would say when I first started, I was probably taking two or three classes a week and then working on my home pole maybe another two times a week. But definitely at first the training wasn't super intense. Now I'm training probably six days a week, an average of two hours each session. And it's a much higher intensity of fitness um, compared to what I used to do. So for those of you who have never done pull, it is an insane workout. It is probably the hardest workout I've ever done. Harder than ballet, absolutely. Um, so tell, tell us what muscles you're using mostly, um, how it's helped you develop, you know, muscle tone all over and your overall fitness stamina. Yeah. So I've been doing pole now for four years and my body has completely changed. When I started, I had no muscle definition at all. Very, I mean, I think I thought I was strong when I started doing pole and I was not at all. Uh, but one of the things I like about pole is it's a whole body workout. Uh, there's a lot of upper body, back, arms, of course, as well as um, core work, but uh, legs as well. And not only is it strength-based, but it's flexibility, it's coordination, it's also working um, your sort of like mental strength as well because there's a lot of memory involved in learning combinations and learning where your body needs to go around the pole. So it's really sort of every aspect of fitness that you could ask for, in my opinion. <laughs> so I'm not sure if I've ever talked about, um, like, myself pole dancing on this podcast. I know I've mentioned it, but, like, when I, right after my surgery, um, not right after, but right after I started working out again with weight training, I started taking some pole classes here and there. And that is how I got so strong in my upper body so quickly. Um, had it not been for taking those classes in the beginning of my weight training, I don't think I would be like where I'm at now, like lifting in the gym. I'm not super into pull. I like lifting way, way more. So I barely take classes now. Um, but obviously like I have Jamie to thank for that, for telling me like, Hey, you should totally do this. It's going to build your strength quickly. And I think that if you are looking to, you know, make a big jump in your upper body strength, that's kind of the way to go. Like it's intimidating for sure, but you get really strong really quickly. Um, so where do you find this insane motivation to train so much and so consistently? I honestly don't know. I've never, until I found pole, I never really felt passionate about a particular form of movement or working out. I mean, I've I think I've tried probably every workout. I've done weightlifting, I've done CrossFit, I've done running, I've ran a half marathon, I've done Pilates, bar, yoga, I've done everything. <laughs> and I've never really felt super connected with 
any particular form of movement until I found pole. And so I think that's really sort of what changed in me was just really feeling passionate and connected with this movement, but also the community with the competition. Um, and there's just like, just so much to learn. And I just want to, I just want to learn it all. <laughs> and just like, I never could have imagined starting out four years ago when I was just a beginner, I never could have possibly imagined I would be where I am in four years. And, um, you know, my goals with pole now, they seem super unachievable, but I just try to remind myself that four years ago, I also thought where I am now was unachievable back then. Um, so if we don't sort of like have this idea in our head of what we want or what we want to achieve, uh, uh, like you just have to start somewhere. Um, you know, if you start today in four, five, six, ten years, you will have really thanked yourself um, from the day you decided to start, you know. Yeah, I mean, you have to start today. And it's, you're just putting it off another day, getting better another day, and waiting until Monday to start an exercise program or, or a better way of eating. Don't wait till Monday, do it today. Um, when you were going through med school, um, or even before med school and you're pre-med, how did you find that motivation? Did it feel like the same in your brain for finding this motivation for pole? Or was it completely different? I had known, like, I decided I wanted to be a doctor, like, before age three, I think. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I don't know why, but this was just always something sort of innate that I wanted. There's no doctors in my family. Um, and so it wasn't that I was just like mimicking other people necessarily. But for some reason, when I saw a doctor or I, particularly it was Dr. Barbie, who actually, you know, the Barbie doctor, like, I think that sold me <laughs> the whole thing. So I think it was Dr. Barbie I owe my success to. <laughs> um, but I, I just decided that's what I wanted to do. And, you know, it, it sounds daunting when you think about like the decades of schooling and training you have to go through. But if you just think of what you need to do today, like I need to do well in high school so I can get into a good college. I need to do well in college so I can get into medical school. I need to do well in medical school so I can get into residency. Like it's just one step at a time um, without getting bogged down by the big picture. The big picture is always in mind, but with the mindset that you just need to focus on today. Was there ever a time in med school um, or during residency where you just like really wanted to stop? I would say no. Um, and the reason I would say that, and I give this advice to a lot of people who want to go into medical school, and I would say this probably for anything that's incredibly demanding. It's probably the same way. Um, in my lowest moments during medical school where I would like literally be crying over my textbooks, of course I, I wasn't happy in those moments. Um, but the one thing that I really found sort of comforting at those times was that there wasn't anything else I wanted to do with my life. So it was this or nothing else. Like, 
this is what I wanted to do. And so I always was able to find comfort in that and get past the hard times by just reminding myself that this was the path that I really 100% wanted to take. That is the biggest difference between Jamie and I. <laughs> she has always known exactly what she wants to do, and I change my mind about what I want to do a thousand times a day, still at 31 years old, well, which is why I'm not a physician. I think I changed my mind, too, in, in the sense that, you know, I wanted to be a doctor, but I didn't know what I wanted to do within medicine, and even to this day, I'm not really sure <laughs> what I want to do within medicine. I mean... You know, I have my job as a hospitalist, but it doesn't feel 100% like the right fit for me. And so I started my own business doing aesthetics, Botox, filler, that sort of thing. Um, and I've really been enjoying that. I don't know where it's going to take me. I don't know where I'm going to be working in five or 10 years. Uh, so there's definitely variabil variability sort of within my field um, and I'm open to whatever opportunities come along the way, uh, but regardless, I'm still still here doing the doctor thing. <laughs> I don't know. What do you like so much about doing Botox and filler? By the way, Jamie did my lips, and they look great, so <laughs> highly recommend. So, as much as I... So, doing aesthetics is great because... Everyone comes into your office super excited and like maybe a little nervous. You get to walk them through the process and pretty much give them instant gratification and a result they're super happy with and grateful for, um, which is in complete contrast to working in the hospital where mostly everyone is grumpy. No one wants to be there. It's a terrible time in everyone's lives. Uh, and while that work is very gratifying, um, it's also exhausting uh, mentally, emotionally. There's a lot about working within a hospital that even as the physician, I can't change. Um, and so it feels very constraining uh, working within such a big system. Uh, I definitely have the personality of someone who like, I work best on my own. I work best being the leader of a team. And in the hospital, it's not that way. And so, you know, when you're someone who thinks that your opinions are the best opinions, <laughs> like it's not great to work in an organization with 100,000 employees. <laughs> oh my God. So, okay, going back to poll, same question towards that. Has there ever been a time during your pole journey over the last four years where you have thought about giving up or wanted to give up? Every single competition. <laughs> Seriously. Okay, so you, do you not like competition or do you just get really nervous? So competition training is a whole other level because you it's not just about perfecting one move. It's about per perfecting an entire, you know, three, four minutes worth of moves all in combination with choreography. And I say this a lot, a lot of times when I'm pole dancing, that I am not a dancer. <laughs> she is not a dancer. <laughs> and so I, I really struggle with that aspect of putting um, the sort of sport movements to music and making it aesthetically 
pleasing and having it tell a story. Um, so that's that's a struggle for me. And training for competition, it's it's a lot of pressure because I, I always want to be the best that I can be. I always want to deliver a, a great performance on stage. And so that pressure um, can sometimes make training feel mm, a little negative at times um, because it doesn't feel just sort of for me, it feels more about like the achievement kind of. Um, and then also the feeling when you're about to go on stage, it feels like, like, like you're about to have a heart attack. I mean, I don't know what that feels like, but like, it feels like you have just so much adrenaline and like your heart is pumping so fast and you're like terrified and you can't even like see. <laughs> I'm sure like it's the same in other disciplines as well. I mean, you did, you know, ballet. I'm sure it was the same when you would go out on stage for your solo and, um, I don't particularly enjoy that feeling. <laughs> uh, yeah, it did feel exactly the same. I kind of thrived in it, which is weird. Um, but yeah, I mean, it definitely it, it does feel like you're having a heart attack. It's very, very... Um, it's hard on your heart. It's hard. Um, but at the same time, I keep coming back for more. I was, gonna, I was just going <laughs> to ask you, so why do you keep competing? Well, I think, in, like, I think it's like being a drug addict. <laughs> like... Like, like you get all of these like feel good chemicals when you're on stage performing. Like it feels so good when you're actually doing the competition that you forget about all the bad stuff. And then you just want that feeling of being on stage again. <laughs> yeah, because the second the music starts, exactly. all that like heart attack, anxiety, fear, not being able to see, that all goes away. And it's just like in. the best high. Yeah, and you can't. You know, you can't actually see the people watching you from the stage because all the bright lights. I mean, you can usually see the judges. They're usually pretty close. But it's not like you look out and realize that you're performing in front of all of these people. It sort of just feels like you and the judges most of the time. So it's not as terrifying once you get out there. Um, so when you are training for, for competitions, how do you take care of your body? Um, so... That's a good question. I'm terrible on my body. You know that. <laughs> she is. Yeah, she's not like the picture of who I would have to talk about like diet and things like that, self care, but definitely the picture of like insane fitness. I definitely, when I'm doing competition training, I definitely take more rest days. Um, I make sort of like bargains with myself about like, okay, today I just have to do my routine two times. That's all I have to do. Like I will like make these little deals with myself. Um, I eat a lot more when I'm competition training because I would say in general, um, I don't do a lot of sort of cardiovascular, cardiovascular type fitness. Um, unless I'm competition training because usually I do a, you know, a combination that's 30 seconds, a minute long maximum. Um, and for pole, you know, I, when I'm putting a routine together, it's four minutes long. So that becomes a lot more um, sort of cardiovascularly intense. Uh, so I definitely eat a lot more during competition training um, and just try to be, give myself a little bit more grace with sort of necessarily like the time I might spend training and 
because it's so much more mentally draining during those times. So if if you guys have never seen a pole routine, like a good pole routine, somebody who's a sport pole fitness dancer, um, four minutes of pole is not like four minutes of running. It is a hundred times more intense. So getting through a four minute pole routine is basically like running a marathon. What was harder, your half marathon or a pole routine? I would say a pole routine because it's it's like a high intensity interval training with strength training as well. Yeah. So it's not just like that standard sort of like get in your groove, run for a few hours situation. It's like four minutes of like you're breathing, you're at your max sort of heart rate and your muscles are incredibly fatigued. <laughs> um, how, how long before a competition do you start training? I would say usually about two months. Um, so first couple weeks of training, I probably am just working on what moves I want to put in my routine. And then uh, following weeks after that, really perfecting those moves and combinations. Um, the next couple weeks is generally all about choreography and then the two weeks up leading to the competition just perfecting the choreography like the whole routine as a, as a whole so when Jamie does competitions she puts together beautiful costumes complete with uh, hairstyle makeup looks like they're incredible um, so my question is do you pick out a character in your mind that you want to play and how deep with that do you go? I generally the first thing I pick is the song and then based on the song I'll pick out sort of the story or the story I want to tell or the character I want to portray so like my last routine the song was actually called The Gallows and it was like this very sort of like dark running anxious kind of song and so I decided to sort of make my routine, it was supposed to portray like trying to escape death. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, I was like, my costume was all black and I wanted it to kind of be like this like Viking warrior outfit, which I like didn't necessarily fully get because I'm not really, you know, a professional costume maker. <laughs> um, but I did sort of like the black swan type makeup and, um, yeah, I I don't think I necessarily sort of like method act though. I don't really like get into it like that. Uh, but I do try to tell a good story when I'm on stage. I would like to think that I was her inspiration for the escaping death routine. <laughs> really, it was just like for that competition, I needed to find a song that so that Arnold like is the shortest competition. So we were only allowed two and a half minutes. And I'm terrible with technology, so I was like, I can't cut a song on my own, so I need to find a song that's less than two and a half minutes long. <laughs> um, yeah, so she just she just competed at the Arnold Classic a couple weeks ago. I actually uh, came down to Columbus to watch her compete. She That was one of her two gold medals I had mentioned when I was introducing her. Um, she placed first in the semi-pro division, so I cannot wait until next year when I get to watch her compete in the pro division. How excited are you? <laughs> I'm really excited to be uh, sort of officially competing in the pro division now at a couple different competition series. Um, it's daunting. Uh, 
but it's obviously um, really exciting to be sort of among the best in the country, uh, even though I might not be the most competitive anymore. Um, it's still great to be competing on that stage. Yeah, I can imagine competing with some some dancers, some athletes who have been on you know the U.S. team and placed at Worlds. I that is oh my gosh, that is such an honor. Right. I mean, so at the Arnold in the pro division this year, uh, there were several athletes from the U.S. team that goes on to compete at the World Championships and. A lot of people don't know this, but pole is um, in the process of actually becoming a recognized sport in the Olympics. So I think they have like provisional status or they're under review or something. But regardless, um, a lot of countries have their own sort of like pole sport federations and put together their sort of like nationwide teams and then send them to the world championships. So there is a US pole dance team um, that goes and competes in the world championships every year. Do you have U.S. pole dance team <laughs> aspirations for the Olympics? I mean, obviously, <laughs> I would love to be on the U.S. team. Um, I'm definitely a few years away <laughs> from that. But, um, you know, like like I said earlier, if you don't have a dream in mind or something you want to achieve, like you don't have a destination, you're just kind of going with the flow, which is fine, but I prefer to have a direction in mind. So even though I might not get there, like that's the direction I want to be headed in. Yeah. Yeah. I had actually just uh, mentioned um, a couple days ago when I was a guest on, on different fitness podcasts, sort of, you know, where my aspirations are going with my weightlifting and they're like so lofty for me, like where I want to get, I've never been in that kind of shape in my life, especially when I was a dancer, but dancing isn't a lot of strength training it's you know it's basically just lower body and a lot of cardio so you are kind of burning off all the muscle that you would be gaining um and that's something i realized too like even though i know in my head i might not get there just wanting to get there is what keeps me motivated and working towards it rather than just being kind of like blase like eh. and that took me a long time to figure out um right and even though i might not ever make the u.s team i if i keep training in three years, I'm definitely going to be better than I am today. And yeah. that's an accomplishment. Yeah. How do you balance your job, your business, pull and teaching pull? Um, so I balance those things very well. It's the other things in my life. <laughs> oh, there, wait, hold on. There's more? <laughs> like, No, I mean, just like, you know, dating and friends and like other hobbies or interests, I have none. <laughs> like, I mean, I have friends. I have no other hobbies or interests though. Um, so, uh, yeah, but I, it's all about making time for the things you wanna make time for. When I want to train, even in my busiest times, I can find an hour to train somewhere. Um, even if it means waking up earlier than I wanna wake up. So it's all about making the time in your life for the things you want to prioritize. And, you know, sometimes I really am too busy. And if I have to go a week without training, like sometimes that happens um, and it's not the end of the world. Um, but when I do have the time, when I do have days off work, I try to optimize that. When you do have to take a week off training, 
how do you feel coming back as a heart like do you notice a decline over that week it's honestly usually better like because I am not someone who likes to take breaks and so when I'm forced to take breaks either for work reasons or because I'm on vacation I usually come back stronger okay because you have a lot of time to kind of heal and recover and rest. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. But a lot of times when you vacation, you just take pole classes there. <laughs> okay, like one pole class. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I mean, of course, I I, train, I love to train with um, a variety of instructors whenever I can. Uh, because learning from the best is how you become the best. <laughs> to the best so you're just gonna have to learn from yourself <laughs> no 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 I still have plenty of people to learn from but I I, I do mostly train by myself uh, for that sort of reason honestly uh, yeah Jamie and I were just kind of talking about something similar to this a little earlier tonight I told her that the reason that she is my best friend is because she is literally the one person on this planet that makes me feel like maybe I'm not the smartest <laughs> And that's, like, important because if you're not the smartest person, or if you are the smartest person in the room, you're in the wrong room. I don't believe that I'm, like, smarter than anyone. Uh, But I do think that when I have my mind set on something, it's pretty damn hard to keep me from achieving it. So, um, a lot of people, I think, mistake that for intelligence when really it's just sort of drive. Drive, yeah. Okay, so Jamie and I have been friends since... Sixth grade. Um, so, I mean, I have seen this for a very long time with her. Like, what she is saying is 100% true. She has always had drive and motivation. And when we were younger, we had very much a frenemyship. <laughs> and there was, you know, jealousy and fights because we were young. And um, now, I mean, like, Jamie's somebody who I'm so grateful to have as a friend because when you have friends who are so motivated especially in areas of your life like her motivation to be a doctor doesn't motivate me at all because I'm not interested in like being a doctor (laughs) but her motivation in fitness I mean that is something that totally keeps me motivated because just having a friend who has similar interests even though I'm not that interested in pole just having a friend who understands you know working out and discipline and dedication and all of those things is so nice and it just she is such an incredible athlete that it makes me feel like I can absolutely be a great weightlifter. And like um, the thing is, like four years ago, I was not an incredible athlete. Like four years ago, I was just a beginner. So anyone can do it. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, you know, you have the yoga background and the gymnastics background, but. Um, when you're an athlete in high school, if you don't continue that consistently, you you lose it. Mm-hmm. It's totally not just because I was a dancer in high school that has nothing to do with my fitness ability I mean, now. I was so my new thing I've been getting into is contortion, um, like flexibility training, contortion and um, handstands, hand balancing. And so today I took a class with my contortion coach, and she was like, "Well." Like, how are you with back walkovers? Like, do a back walkover. And when I was a kid, like 10 years old, I would do back walkovers on the balance beam, which is four inches big. (laughs) 
And like today, I was like, no, I'm not flexible enough to do that. And then I was like, she's like, yes, you are. And then I was like, no, I'm going to fall on my head. And she's like, no, you're not. And it was so scary to do, to even attempt because I haven't done it in what, two decades? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Jamie is definitely flexible enough to do a back walk over. Like you should, I mean, of course at the end, we will shout out all of her social media so you can go watch her, her, uh, pull videos. And she has been putting a ton of contortion videos on there, but like the girl is a pretzel. She is flexible <laughs> enough to do it. Okay. But like I, you know, judge myself against the Cirque du Soleil artist. So it's like a different level. <laughs> Jamie could probably be in Cirque du Soleil within six months. <laughs> too much credit, but thank you. <laughs> it's not too much credit. Um, okay. So if you were listening to this podcast looking for advice on how to get motivated to to dedicate yourself to a sport or even just you know a, a basic fitness regimen what what would you tell yourself i would say find something you like um that was sort of my biggest takeaway uh there is something for everyone and while I'm sure there are a lot of people in fitness who sort of subscribe to the idea that you need to do X amount of cardio and X amount of weightlifting and keep everything balanced and whatever, um, I think the reality is like doing what makes you happy is probably the best for living a balanced life. Um, and so I would say find something that resonates with you and just start somewhere. Uh, it doesn't take long to form a new habit and so if you make it a habit to, you know, go to a yoga class or go to a spin class or whatever it is on Monday, Wednesday, Thursday, like if you do it those days, like in a few weeks, it's going to feel super natural and it's just going to be what you do. So if you compare now or the last four years since you've been pole dancing to before you were really into one type of fitness, Um, how do you feel different, like in your mind? Does your body feel a lot better? I'm the worst person to ask this right now. (laughs) Because like literally me and Mallory was just talking to me about how like yoga has like hurts her body because like uh, the flexibility or whatever. And I'm like, you should take a contortion class. It's literally torture. <laughs> like oh, That's right. You didn't say like, that today. My body hurts every second of it. <laughs> okay. So what about your mind? Are you happier? Do you think more clearly? No, I, I mean, I'm, I have never been happier in my life for sure. I am satisfied with my work. I'm satisfied with like my extracurriculars with pole. Like I have a creative outlet. I have Um, sort of an outlet for my energy Um, and like pole is my passion (laughs) Um, and so and my body does feel better mostly like I'm definitely stronger I no longer have sort of I used to have like a lot of pain in my shoulders and like like just feel like I couldn't even like keep my shoulders back the way I should because I was like sitting at the desk all the time, like just simple stuff like that, that I feel like now with sort of the strength that I've gained and the body awareness that sort of has gone away. So, um, 
yeah, I'm all about fitness. <laughs> um, is there, I mean, it has honestly been like so great to have you on this podcast. I'm very, very fortunate to be good friends with a top tier athlete. I mean, she is an extreme athlete. And if you guys follow her on social media, watch any of her videos, that'll be immediately apparent. Um, so obviously thank you for agreeing to do this with me. Is there anything else that you have? No, I would say, uh, yeah. If, if you're interested at all in any sort of like aerial or circus arts or alternative fitness, like take a pole class, take a Lyra class, take a silks class. It's, so much fun um and at the very least you'll have a good time for an hour and never do it again um but maybe you'll love it and in four years maybe you will have also won gold medals <laughs> if you do get into it you know the internet is a great tool instagram is a great tool research studios in your area you know find it, it is worth it to find the studio that has the best technique that has good reviews has a loyal customer base for sure i think that that and something like pole and this could be like my dance background talking and jamie will agree technique is so important i think it's important Absolutely. on all areas of fitness but um you know you can get really hurt and and pole if you're not if you're not somewhere that's going to teach you good technique yeah. and make sure you're placed in the right classes yeah and i would say it's probably difficult to know as a beginner what like what you're looking at when you're looking at a studio and trying to pick the one with the best technique. So ask questions like, are your instructors certified? What sort of training do your instructors have? And then look at the, look at what they're posting on their Instagram. Look at what their students look like. Does it look good to you? If it doesn't look good to you, maybe you should go to a different studio. <laughs> are, are their toes pointed? Are, you know, do they have straight lines? Like these are all things that you know, of course not everyone is going to do it because it's a lot to think about. Like, even as a ballet dancer, when I take a pole class, I absolutely forget to point my toes. But, you know, if you have good pole dancers, you they will be remembering to point their toes and having straight lines and and yeah. those kind of things. Yeah. Um, and, of course, you know, if you do want to take a class, you can just follow Jamie on your Instagram and ask some more questions. So. Yeah, just ask me where you should go to take a class. I'll give you the lowdown. <laughs> <laughs> no shame and I have a lot of opinions oh my god <laughs> is that true um all right well thanks for coming on thanks for having me we will have to have you back after you win the pro division oh god um okay. no pressure <laughs> I'll see you in like a decade <laughs> all right bye welcome back to hard x head today we are going to talk about balancing a career and social life along with very intense fitness training. I am so excited about my guest today. I literally could not think of a single better person to have on the show to talk about this. Um, she is actually my best friend since junior high school. Her name is Dr. Jamie Alkert. She is a physician. She's also a business owner. Uh, she has a med spa where she does lip filler, Botox, facial filler, things of that nature. And she is also a two-time gold medalist in sport pole dance fitness. So she is here to tell us how she juggles being such a badass bitch in so many areas of her life. 
Okay, so you guys see what I mean? Obviously, she's a badass bitch. Make sure you give Jamie a follow on Instagram. Her tag is dr.jamie.ann. That's doctor spelled out dot J-A-M-I-E dot A-N-N. Um, she has some really incredible videos. I will, of course, tag her. And I will see you guys next time.